Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucktologists? What the fuck Tuckians? Whatever the fuck you want to call yourselves. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. My show, my podcast, uh, a lot of people enjoy it. I assume that if you're listening to it, you're one of those people, and I appreciate you being here. I am, let, let's try to f- figure out a way to do this right now. I'm on, uh, I'm on vacation. I'm, uh, I'm, I will speculate on what I'm doing on vacation in a moment. But what is happening right now is I'm panicking because, quite frankly, I'm not on vacation yet. Here's what's going on right now. I'm going on vacation uh, this weekend, but as you listen to this, I'm on vacation. That's that's fucked up, right? And this is like mind-bending stuff right now. So what's going on now is Jessica is, of course, in the house, engaged in what seems to be a lifelong laundry pro- project. I don't know uh, if this is a common thing with people or, or with women, or yeah, it's it certainly it just seems to be a never-ending laundry project going on, and whether. Maybe I'm missing a lot of outfits that she wears. Maybe I'm not paying enough attention because it would seem to me that the amount of laundry she does would imply that she wears, at least in my mind, six or seven outfits a day, which I'm just not seeing any evidence of that. I'm not too critical of it. Look, everyone has to have their hobbies. If that's her hobby, so be it. And uh, I love her. But that's going on in the house, and that'll continue for the next couple of days as we prepare, ending in probably a panic about one load that needed to be done, which, of course, has to be hung dry outside, which we will probably be doing right up until we drive to the airport. I, on the other hand, uh, have an experience with panic around vacations in that usually a day before a vacation or two days before a vacation, something happens that never happens. Like for me right now, the the fear is that maybe a sinkhole will uh, just uh, occur under my house, that my house will start sinking into the ground and I'll have to deal with that. I'll have to buy some wood and 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 cover some things just so it holds until I'm back. There's also the, the fear of sewage or per, perhaps a cat going wrong somehow. Uh, cats can break down. Don't know. Have no idea what's going to happen. Mark Duplass is on the show today. Did I mention that? I probably didn't. Nice guy. But this is what's happening in the present. I'm going through a pre-vacation panic. There's laundry happening in the house. I have to buy cat food. Uh, I have to get into the mindset to get rid of some of my vices, like Twitter for uh, a, a, a week or so, like coffee, like uh, like the computer, like email. I'm going to try to go off the grid completely and probably see exactly who I am and then run back to the grid in a fury. Get me back to the grid. I will be screaming from a mountain on an island. But now let's speculate what's really happening with me. Uh, I'm, I'm a couple of days into my vacation. I feel great. Uh, I'm, gr- I'm happy to be here. Um, it's amazing how much freer my mind is without all the panic and clutter of staying on top of things, um, just letting stuff go. Things are just falling off my shoulders. I'm relaxed. I'm light. I'm, uh, I'm meditating for the first time in my life. Uh, I'm, I'm gaining some vague spirituality about my place in the world. I understand life and all its questions 
and the darkness is slowly, slowly dissipating. That's my speculation for what's going on on vacation. You'll have to wait until I get back. I'll keep a diary of what what's going on on vacation. Mark Duplass, by the way, if you don't know him, he's a, he's a regular on The League on FX, but he's also a movie actor and movie maker. Uh, him and his brother uh, make movies, and uh, he's a good guy, but he's in four movies that are currently in theaters. Four movies. Your Sister's Sister, Safety Not Guaranteed with Aubrey Plaza, People Like Us with Chris Pine and Elizabeth Banks, and Darling Companion with Diane Keaton and Kevin Kline, uh, and also the movie he directed, Jeff Who Lives at Home with Jason Siegel and Ed Helms is now on DVD, and Blu-ray, and On Demand. And you know what? I He's a good guy. I actually have I experienced no uh, no resentment or jealousy uh, towards this man. I'm not saying a lot uh, when you're me. Hey, you know what? Let's do a quick uh, handwritten mail segment into the very popular Stamps.com plug. How would that be? I got this very nice card on very nice stationery with an anchor on it. Um, and on the envelope, it says, P.S. Sorry if stationery is not your thing, but it is mine. Making a stand for the stationery before I even open it. Dear Mark, I really love your podcast. In fact, it has made me realize I have daddy issues. That's uh, enticing. But that's not why I'm writing. I'm writing to discuss my cat issues. Growing up, I had two cats, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Within the past couple of years, a stray cat started showing up. So we, of course, named him Boris. Boris didn't get along with the other two. They were old and grumpy, so we didn't take him in, but we fed him and loved him. Now Rocky and Bullwinkle have both passed, but Boris is nowhere to be found. So my question is, what is the longest you've gone without seeing one of your strays only to have them come back? It's been a month. Do I have hope? Please do not make any allusions to his death. Will not believe he's ever dead. Thanks, Allison. I will not believe he's ever dead. I think you're slowly making this cat a deity, which is fine. If, if, if he provides hope for you that he's out there, I've been through this many times before, uh, sometimes up to three, four weeks, not unusual. Um, so I, I say hang on to hope, I, and I think Boris is out there. And, and Boris, as you said, will always be out there for all of us. What the fuck? What the fuck? I don't think I would have bought a house if I didn't have a girl that uh, at the time that told me I could buy a house. I had no understanding of it. Did you buy it? You haven't bought one yet. Mm-hmm. We have. We bought. We bought in Los Feliz. Uh, oh, so you live down the street? Yeah, I'm right here, dude. Huh. This is so easy for me, and I'm looking at a duplex as a potential like rental income property. Are you going to become a building manager? No, I'm going to become. Here's my goal. I want to. Uh, I want to own these things and rent them out until I feel like I've made a decent amount of money, and then I want to turn them into like, like artist commune places. Like I have this, the, I know this guy who who's a musician and he's just really successful, and he um he has this house, it's four bedroom house, and uh, he lets musicians who are coming to L.A. composers yeah. who don't know people yet live there for like two hundred fifty bucks a month for a few months to like get their feet wet, really, and like meet people and. I so, just love that. Idea. So you have uh you know you have a grand scheme. I got yeah. a grand scheme, dude. A grand scheme to support the arts. I want to I want to be Roger Corman. No, that's not the direction that you were just discussing. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> kind you want to be of. 
He, 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 How come I, I thought of something so much more uh, altruistic okay. and <laughs> altruistic and, and more sort of like post hippie kind of like uh, we're all creating here. Who's yeah. cooking tonight? Well, that, that happened with Roger Corman. It was an accident for him, but he like fostered all these great filmmakers. No, but, you know? but did they have a group house and people? I don't think so. Like Coppola was, you know, in the kitchen and, you know, making some, making some spaghetti. Yeah. And some, uh, spagoots. some, some unknown named Jack Nicholson is uh, just hanging fart, out. Just farting it up in the living room. And, and just, chopping garlic, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So I, uh, Mark Duplass is in the uh, garage here. Look, I didn't get to see uh, Jeff who lives at home. Don't be mad. I'm not mad. You've had a, a, a you've long been on enough, the road like crazy. You've, you've had a long enough career. There's other things to discuss. I did sit uh, two days ago and watch the uh, Puffy Chair. Okay, I watched that. I saw Cyrus. Man, I watched that. You've done some research. I saw Hump Day because I interviewed you for Hump Day. Right, you just acted in Hump Day. That's right. Right. Well, no, I you know I was putting it off. I like Cyrus. I, I'm a fan of yours, and uh, but I didn't uh, really. Uh, Realize how much I would like the uh, puffy chair. Oh, cool! And that was your first movie. That was our first feature. Yeah. And your brother's name is Jay. That's true. It is true. That's true. Now, okay, so let's uh, like when I was watching that, and when I watched, uh, I've watched in a couple things, and uh, I sense a, a, a percolating uh, darkness in you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where was that born? Um, it's it, it came. It's it's very steeped in my dad. Um, and it's a little bit in my mom too. Where my, were you brought up? I was brought up in New Orleans. Really? Yeah. Like what part? Like is, in Metairie, the suburb right outside. Do you know it? Was uh, do you have family there still? They're all well. I have some extended family. But my parents live here now because I gave them grandkids, and my brother did as well. So they're they're we're all juiced up on the east side of L.A. in the little family commune. Really? Yeah. Now are they? Uh, did they um, retire well, or are you taking care of them? Man, they retired really well. My dad's a lawyer. He did great. He actually supported me and Jay a lot in our early twenties when we were trying to figure out what we were doing and not good at it and he was immensely supportive so you come from a pretty good upper middle class family totally upper middle class normal family my, my dad gave us the fifteen thousand dollars that it cost to make the puffy chair was so, he excited about it because i know he's in the puffy chair and yeah. he seems like a pretty good guy he was psyched man and 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 it's weird it was like opposite sketches at, at our parents house i went to like a very intense catholic prep school why I, why'd they do that to you well, when you grow up in New Orleans, you got you got two options. You know, you can um, you can't go to the public schools if you're a white kid because you really do get beat up, um, and the schools are are. Just but think you'd be making th- such different movies. Not good. I would be. <laughs> <laughs> totally different. Movies. I mean, boy, it wouldn't be these sort of white guys struggling with their selfishness. It'd be you know, it would le- it would be less. <laughs> you'd be in- out in the streets. You would have been like alive and in the world. I know, and I'd look different too, and I'd dress differently. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, maybe maybe that's a, that could be an idea for a movie. I'm pitching a movie to you. It could the, be the altern the alternate Mark Duplass life. Exactly. All right, so so you go to Catholic school primarily because it was like a private school, uh, but it's cheaper. Right, it's like only I two grand it. a year, and that's but, what you can afford. So right. you do that, and then all my friends were like really rich by the time we were 23, and Jay and I were just broke and it was kind of depressing there for a little bit how were they really rich they just all went off and they got you know business degrees and they moved to new york and they were working at goldman sachs right out of college that that was the trajectory of that class of people that was it man and you were like you know fuck that i'm an artist i'm an artist and then and that was really fun but then you're you know you're like 24 25 26 27 you're still not making money it starts getting real sad real dark real scary 
And I got to give it to my parents for hanging in there with us. You know, I mean, they, my dad was really cool. He's like, I'm going to give you like a thousand bucks a month to like live. So you don't have to waste all your time tending bar, but you got to work on your shit and, and, and do your thing. What, where, where did this belief in you come from? I mean, was this after the puffy chair or this, this was, was way, leading up to it? This was leading up to it. I, I don't know. What happened to the music thing? You know, it was fine. I played in indie rock bands. We toured around and, and, you know, we made our, whatever, $100 a night. And, uh, but I, I kind of, I don't know if you felt this ever, but like, I just, I just had this feeling that I was not going to be building uh, sustainable relationships at home by being on the road 220 days out of the so year. So you were already thinking ahead at having a family? Fuck yeah. Uh, wait. No, sorry, I don't, I don't even think about that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you got such a nice backyard. I know. Yeah, one that would be very dangerous for a child. For children to tumble. Yeah, this is, this and... is not a, a, a child-friendly house. So I am with a woman now. I've been through two wives. Uh, no kids, but this one I don't think she's going to let me get away with it. Come on, Marin. What? I they, the baby. Come rub- on, listen. To, see, that's the attitude. Step up. They rub out the darkness. Be a man. Can I tell you something? That's I, a good reason to have a kid. Am, Could you I please erase my darkness? Twenty-five to thirty percent less dark than I was before I had my daughter. Now, when you did the puffy chair, were you married? I was not married, but Katie, who's in the puffy chair with me, is my as wife. your girlfriend. That's my wife. Yeah, that's your girl. That's your wife now. Yeah. So you always had family on your mind. So you were brought up with a certain idea. That so you weren't this type type of you weren't a completely self consumed artist you actually thought about career absolutely I was thinking really? career I was thinking long term I was thinking like I want kids in the backyard Kramer versus Kramer fucked me up at an early age and I, I you, was, you thought that that was going to happen to your parents or I was just worried that would happen to me for some I like I your didn't parents wanna, still together they're right? still together yeah and and I I just I don't know why I just wanted the stable life thing I saw it I felt it so let me just ask you something because yeah. I saw like you know after watching the movie. After watching Puffy Chair, I knew that guy couldn't be that different than you. He is a little different. Here's the, here's where he's the same. Well, he's not. He's certainly not thinking about a family. He's not thinking about a family. He's he's basically a less emotionally aware version of me. I have all those feelings. Yeah, I can sit here with you and talk about them. The character in that movie can't really can't really elucidate them. Okay, that well, doesn't erase my problems that I can talk about them. Right. I just know what they are and can talk about them. But were you a guy that was like, you know, I'm going to be a fucking rock star somehow? Yeah. Like, okay, so the music thing didn't work out, then fuck it, I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to make fucking movies. Uh, we were doing people it People will recognize me. <laughs> Somehow, these people <laughs> will see my genius. Right. Um, we were always doing both at the same time. Like, my brother and I were still making movies while we were making music. Um, and then something weird happened when we were like, when I was like 25 and Jay was like 28. We accidentally stumbled into making what we thought was a decent movie, which was like... We had just spent, I think, almost $50,000 making a feature film that no one has seen, that we've never really talked about, that we just buried. Um, it's still in the vault? It's in the vault. And it is, it's god-awful, and it's embarrassing, and we were so fucking depressed, and we were just like, this is dangerous. How like, much did you spend? We spent like $50,000. That's not, that. I mean, in, 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 in the scope of things. But from we where had, you sit now, it's like, eh, it's not. We used to work as editors and we saved up all this money. Wait, when, when did that happen? I ran a, Jay and I ran an editing business in Austin when we were like in our, like basically early 20s. All right. So you, you went to Catholic high school. Moved to Austin. Right after high school? Yep. No college. Went to college. Where? In Austin? UT. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was a time when, like, it was Linklater and Rodriguez. Well, you definitely see Linklater in the puffy chair. Yeah. But, I mean, the, but that is just because, I mean, that's the only thing you can really compare it to on some level. But it didn't, it, it wasn't about the same thing. That there's a, the difference between 
how you shot it, what I related to was that it seems that this was in Cyrus too, that you seem to be able to sit with, uh, you know, fairly, you know, difficult emotions for long periods of time in, I, the, in the movie. That, like, that's why I'm here, man. <laughs> Because you're able to laugh at really dark, uncomfortable things, and I just want to sit with you here. Well, the, the thing is, like, like, like a couple of points in the movie that I thought the 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 because it's right in my mind. I know you probably haven't talked about it in a while, but the, when you said that you were going to get the chair reupholstered, I thought you were lying. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. 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 So because then you wanted the people to say like, "Well, this guy's really fucked up," and then it turns out, no, you really did. Yeah. yeah. But the other part that I liked was uh, I, the character, your brother. See, this is only familiar to a certain bunch of people. I mean, I know those guys. Yeah, I mean, I know. you know, if you if you have that lifestyle, if you were kind of a postmodern bohemian, you know, mm -hmm. growing up. I mean, I'm 48. There was always one of those guys. Absolutely, I think they're around more than you think they are. At least like Austin, Portland, certain certain Seattle. Certain right, because they were in a. You know, Josh uh, Josh Leonard had one in his movie too. Did totally. you have anything to do with the lie? No, I just helped. Just consulted with him as a bud. That was it. Yeah, that the, the sort of weird kind of like completely irresponsible but uh, Buddha-like mm -hmm. person that's not really a Buddha. They just don't have the, the panic and worry that the other people have. Totally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just like the idea of putting a type A guy and that, that, that Buddha guy in a van together for a week, you know, and yeah. it's cheap, fun conflict. And that whole thing about the wedding and then you saying like, yeah, it's, it's going to pass in a week and then the next day he's like, yeah, yeah it didn't work <laughs> yeah. out. And you're like, he was nah. right. I was right. I mean, that, that movie was like, to to try to describe how it was made, it was chaos. It was like, really, you know, it, it seems so it was, laid back. It was like a, it was like an open mic night where we were just like, let's try and cobble together something that makes sense and works. And it was, you know, we only had fifteen grand, so I was like, oh, I got my touring van. And Katie's from this small town. We can shoot there for free a bunch. So that was a band touring van. Yeah, that was my that was my band's van. So the, so that's really a documentary about the death of a dream. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> On more, in more ways than one. Um, and it was, you know, we were just like, we were trying to basically make something that felt uh, as real as possible uh, in terms of like a documentary aesthetic. We love documentaries. Oh, yeah, I do too. And I was like, I, I don't want to make documentaries because your life is fucking miserable when you make documentaries. You work right. on something for 10 years and maybe seven people see it. Right, and also that you, you've got to sort of balance it in a certain mm -hmm. way to where it's provocative and you're not partisan about... 100%. Whereas in the narrative film, you can be unabashedly partisan right. and structure it. And so I'm basically trying to make try, try all the documentary principles of filmmaking and put them in the narrative. I think that's a, a noble undertaking. So in terms of like being hung with that... Well, did you know Linklater? Because I met him when I was... Uh, where the hell was I? Just I met him I met him out here. Did you hang out with him? No, I was, I was like... A, he didn't know who the hell I was. I couldn't hang out with him. I wanted but to. But he was in town. He was fairly him. accessible. Yeah, but I was too nervous and scared because oh. he made Slacker and I worshipped him, you know? And you love Slacker. I loved it. Man. Changed your life. I mean, that movie was playing in Austin at the Midnight Runs when I showed up in 1995 and I was like, this is what I want to do. You because know? you saw that, uh, what would what is it that you saw that anyone could do this, uh, that real people can act, and that uh, there were no rules. And most importantly, this guy in this T-shirt, who's like an ex high school athlete, is a filmmaker. And it's not that guy that I read about in the books who doesn't feel anything like me. Like Linklater felt like me. He's and not Gadar. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's no beret here. Like he's got a he's got a post high school football athlete gut. And he's got holes in his shirt and jeans, and he actually is not that erudite when he talks. Uh -huh. He just, this dude feels like me. Did you, were you an athlete? 
I mean, I was a runner in high school, and you know, not, oh, that's not, I wasn't like a college athlete or anything. But, but a runner, but those—that's uh, like you know, I can I can live with that. You, you know, football players are different. Runners are sort of like I'm doing this. Yeah, know. it's a solo sport. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. It's the same thing we're doing now, competing against ourselves. Right, right. But uh, but there's other people doing it in the same town, probably yeah. down the street. And you have <laughs> yeah. to not unlike other sports, you have to pretend like you like them. Totally. <laughs> but uh, so when. When you realize that the technology was available, well, that was the other thing about Linklater is like, you know, fuck, we can do this. I mean, yeah. you can make a movie for 15000 But you got labeled with this mumblecore thing, which I have to assume on some level, outside of spinning it to uh, represent something, must have been a little annoying. Was it, was, it? it was, you know what, I got to be honest, it was fucking awesome in 2005 when I made a $15,000 movie and the New York Times was saying that I was part of a movement. Because anytime the New York Times writes about a $15,000 movie, it's great. I don't care what you call it. But I saw some of the other movies that they call that and they were irritating. Yeah. Because like, I didn't I didn't find yours particularly you know, layered with garbage. Yeah, well, that's my, my second point to it is like that the name is reductive and limiting because it, it implies that there's no plot, people are babbling, and, and it's just basically shoegazing, you know? Um, I hate fucking navel-gazing. I hate the word navel-gazing. I, I hate when people use it. Yeah, I, I almost used it. Is shoegazing the same thing? No, it's different. That's that sort of droopy? It's it's a little lower. <laughs> right, but yeah. so like, navel-gazing implies like you're just sitting there like you're noodling in your yeah, head. Yeah, that Where kind shoegazing of thing. somehow... Seems to represent a surrender of some kind. Yeah, you, you've got, you've gone further down. You're hopeless. <laughs> you're not. Yeah, even, yeah it's yeah. all over. <laughs> no, you're not entertaining thoughts. Exactly. You've given up. But yeah, well, so I don't think the movies I'm making are mumblecore by any means, and I don't know what that means anymore. It was fine for a time. It brought some attention, but it wasn't like the Dogma '95 movement where we curated it and we decided we were doing it. It was just some name that the press came up. I with. like those movies. I love those movies. Jesus. Celebration. That's fucking crazy. That Holy movie. shit. That, that is so You know, we, we talk about it constantly because me and my core filmmaker friends, because, you know, what's happening right now with the technology yeah. is that, as you can see, everybody's got a podcast in their garage. Everybody's trying to make a puffy chair and they're starting to look the same. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of garbage out Is that there. because of the, the limits of the technology? It's not the limits of the technology. It's because when you think of making a cheap movie, yeah. the first thing that comes to you is four people go to a house for the weekend. Right. And all those movies are being made, and it's annoying the shit out of me. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's time to like break the form. But somehow <laughs> the celebration, which has the basic form of like, Ah, oh, it's a family uh, reunion gone awry. Awry? It's, that's, a, it's, that's a mild That's a word. mild term, yeah. <laughs> yeah right, it, right. it somehow just, just you know, transcends the form. That was layered with a darkness that I couldn't even imagine. I mean, you know, you watch that movie, and as it unfolds, and you realize, like, oh, shit, this is happening. That might be why we like that so much, is it makes us seem like we're okay. Well, that, and also, it, it I think it also makes you... Uh, just consider, um, you know, how much is hidden. Yeah, Be because Do you have I, any of that weird shit in your family? Incest? No, <laughs> not no. incest, but like the things you're scared to go home about because they might come up. Or is it just like, no, you, ah, it's a little awkward. What, what I have found, because I grew up with some you know, emotional and mental, not instability, but you know, very few boundaries and very self-involved parents. But what, what I'm finding as I get older, mo both of my folks are still alive, there doesn't seem to be a statute of limitations on things mm. that there should be. It's like, you, you know, my dad tells me things now that I don't, you know, it's like, you're like I would have rather just, you know, bumbled around in the darkness yeah. than know that that's where you were coming from. So, you know, they're not completely disruptive. Yeah. But, you know, there's definitely a, a there was definitely a lot of lies. Yeah. And a lot, you know, and I think that happens in families. Is he bringing that up? Is he just looking for 
clearance from you or looking for some sort of well i think that like i think that's sort of what you know like not unlike in the puffy chair that you know when people don't have the personal courage to to honor their feelings yeah that uh you know everything becomes a manipulation yeah that you're going to manipulate somebody else into speaking for you into making the decision for you absolutely and and eventually you know either because you see the light of your life you know fading out and and it has to be a confession yeah you know it's just to put it out there i don't know if he thinks about it in those terms probably not it's probably an impulse i should say this i right but i think it's also strangely competitive yeah i think that that fathers and sons you know no matter how healthy it was you know they want to (laughs) win that's do you have brothers yeah yeah do you have that with brother any brother stuff there well my brother's a jock, you know, yeah. he was, he was, he was a tennis guy. But then after, as he got older, he became even you know more like me. Like he surprised me and how similar we were. So yeah. no, but uh, I, I find that I have not seen a movie. I've seen some movies that deal with that dynamic, you know, yeah. like the great Santini and the, the one with Jackie Gleason and Tom Hanks where, you know, you have a nothing father. in common. Yeah. I like that little movie. Well, well yeah, it's great. You know, yeah. uh, you know, dealing with selfish dads is like, uh, it's a, it's rich, man. It's a cool thing. Was yours like that? No, man. I gotta say like, uh, my dad is, he's like the hero for us, which is weird. Cause we write a lot of stuff with like dads that are fucked up or dead. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just fun to imagine that. But like, we 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 had the we had the best of all worlds. We had the dad who's just like, I totally believe in you, and I'm going to back it up, like emotionally and fiscally. Well, that, I mean, that's sweet. And and I, I you know I kind of felt that. Like I feel like you're well adjusted guy, and you're you're just you, you know you 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 seem uh you know like you know, hungry to keep going. I have a I have a crazy fire in my system. Right. I don't know why I have this. Yeah. It's 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 truly desperate uh, in, Is a, it? in every sense of the word. Yeah, because it's. I have no peace in my life whatsoever. I'm not a relaxed person by any means, but I'll wake up at one in the morning and, and there are four movie ideas in my head and there's nothing I can do about but it. But that's creativity. That's, that's creativity. You're not waking up going like, I'm a fraud and I need to, you know, I no. shouldn't. Uh... No, it's not that kind of thing, but I just feel so compelled to to do those things and to make those things. I, I don't know how you feel. I mean, because I feel like I'm watching you get more successful and this has probably been one of the better phases of your career, I think. Best. Certain, yeah, it's right. You're, you're here. Well, the, but, the, but the thing so is... you is, climbed a mountain. Yeah, but I didn't know I was climbing. I yeah. was just, you know, I was clinging to something. It, w- w- this actually happened when I gave up. Yeah. That, that's the weirdest thing. Is <laughs> that you crazy. Know, I climbed a fucking mountain for 20 years, and it was really like, you know, it's over. I'm done. And, and we started doing this. But, but to speak to what's happened, which you know, I had no plan. I never had a plan. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a very you know immediate needs. You know, like it's it, everything's just feeding something right, right now, and anything that's in the future it looks horrible. You're, so, you're a coyote. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, wily coyote. Mm. But but one thing I noticed when I ran into you at Sundance, even for a second, and I think this is you know, the uh, something you probably know about yourself is that you seem to handle it very well. That even when I interviewed you for Hump Day with Josh, that, you know, given your success, it seems that you were completely ready and you were like, yes, I, I should be recognized. I feel that way. It yeah. sounds terrible to say that, but I'm like, I, I I absolutely belong where I belong to a certain extent. Right, and that's a, you know that's why you know it continues. Like whatever's happening for me now, if it had happened for me ten years ago, like if I had just gotten a TV show ten years ago right. and they were actually going to go to series, you know, like they're doing with IFC, I I would have been like, I can't, I'm I'm not, I can't do it. Spazzed and yeah, I would have, I would have like all my career was driven by spite. You know, yeah. like why the fuck is that guy? How come I'm not? <laughs> 
Yeah, that, that's yeah. how I talked to my manager. Yeah. And you know, he just happened to be powerful enough to get me, yeah. you know, opportunities. But I'm, I'm sort of grateful now that I, you know, I can handle it. Yeah. But you seem like one of those guys that was ready to handle it. And now you're just fucking going to generate. And I, I think tracked it by birthdays. I remember at some point when I turned like 31, somebody was like, whoa, 31, getting up there. And I remember every birthday I'd had before that was like, God, I'm getting older. Fuck, where's my, where's my success? I should be so much further along by this point, you know? And so then, this is a big, it's a money thing? A, a, a success, a fame, a... Well, what, that, what does that mean to you? To me, it was like... um Making movies that people loved and and you know remembered, remembered, and you know even other things like getting the writing deals I wanted to get and box office things. But wait, wait but yeah, but that's business in in terms of that. It has to do with politics. But yeah. like in your mind, what what you know? Because Slacker is like that's remembered uh, remembered film, yeah. but it's an esoteric film. Yes, and it's respected. In, that in was a, my puffy chair. That was that was the first mountain I climbed. Was like oh, you want to make us? You want to be? You want to have cult? Cred. Could I could I get a movie into Sundance that sold out of Sundance and that critics and a small group of people did you loved? go to did you go to film school I went to film school but I dropped out halfway through and, wait, at UT yeah so you didn't finish college I finished with an English degree because I could get out quickly basically. yeah that's what I did you know but uh, all right so but you knew but see because clearly you're speaking in business terms like you know that that never existed for me and I don't know yeah like and, and then there was that crew that you, you know the crew that everybody respects like you brought up Corman and you know, all those guys in the 70s yeah. that you know just happened to be at, at you know a paradigm shift yeah where you know that you know Hollywood uh, the old boys tapped out and they, I'm in that right now I swear to God I'm in that I went into a meeting to a studio the other day with this you know one of the producers that's made all the movies we watched growing up and I watched him looking at me like with not fear in his eyes, but confusion as I was talking about how we make these movies at this budget level with these cameras and this stuff. And I got out of the meeting and his, um, you know, junior exec called me and was just like, you just like blew this guy's mind. And he, he he's severely depressed and feels like he's officially aged out, you know, uh -huh. and there is a certain degree of like, I'm so lucky that I was like 26 when the technology shifted. Yeah. Because I'm right here in the yeah. sweet spot. And, right. I, and I get to do all these things. Right. You know how you always think about it? You're like, man, if I could have been a comic in the 50s when this was happening, I'm like in the sweet spot as a filmmaker. Yeah, but but you know, even then, that the weird thing that you also have to remember is that you know there was you know, there was another ten thousand comics in the fifties that weren't Lenny Bruce. Totally. Wasn't. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like even now, like you brought up before, you know, everybody thinks they can do this. Totally. So you you know the 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 good fortune that you had to create a piece of work that did have a life of its own, you know, that's a game changer. Totally. And I guess my question then, in your mind now, what what is what what is the perfect movie? And you're not you know slacker aside. I feel you seem to talk about that as a training ground. Mm -hmm. But like for you personally, what are the movies where you're like, well, that fucking thing? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's mostly documentaries to me. Really, like, it's harder for me to be blown away in the narrative form. It could just be because I live it and I'm in it, and I I don't have that childlike sense of watching a movie anymore. But, but wait, but but you've got it like the like I I I maintain a childlike sense. Uh huh. I, because I keep that child you know locked up. Yeah. And and you know and uh, and and I let him respond. Uh, I'm glad you have control over him. I don't know if I, I don't have control over mine anymore. I don't think. Really, you seem to like in uh, in the puffy chair. Anyways, there seemed to be part of you that uh, you know was very aware that that character was infantile. Yeah, yeah, but I, I would say just in terms of like being a non cynical, non sarcastic viewer and acceptor of art. 
You know, I, I can't I can't put that guy in a movie theater and watch a movie like I did when I was. Five. Can you put it in front of a painting? Could you put it in probably front of a for piece different of writing for different art forms? Yeah, you know. But I, I mean, I'll say like the last narrative movie that I watched that really like, you know, inspired me because of its newness and its sense of you know just not being cynical was when I saw Once in the movie theater. You know, and it was like, oh, this is a this is a could be a corny movie. So um, it's a musical. So it touched you. And it's an odd, low-budget musical. But you're moved by musicals. No. <laughs> I can't say that empirically. But this musical did touch me because it's a totally original form. I don't, I don't want to admit that, but you get a bunch yeah. of people singing in front of me, I find it very touching. Mm -hmm. I, I find singing to be very vulnerable. I can't help myself. Do you still go out to see shows? Like music shows? No. I never, yeah, I I never really anymore. did because yeah. uh, like it, it, it's, it's always an aggravating thing. And it doesn't seem to... Like, okay, so let's say you have a little cachet, which I don't. You probably have more than me. So you get to go backstage so you don't get to watch it from there. And then like, you know, if you go to the movie as a regular person, you don't get to watch it from you know the front of the stage. It's just a big fucking pain in the ass unless you can sit down. Is that because I'm old? I don't know. It's, it's partly because <laughs> you're old, but I, I'm not as old as you are and I feel the exact same way. I want I want music in my headphones. Like, yeah, that's where I love it. But so, but like, look, I mean, in, in my mind though, there's some there's there's been a few great movies lately, mm -hmm. and I'm not watching the same movies as you. But I mean, like somebody who 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 kind of followed the same trajectory, like David O. Russell. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I mean, look, he's got some great movies. Flirting with Disaster blew me away. Great movie. Know? Yeah, I mean, I spanking didn't, the monkey. I didn't spanking the monkey. Loved it. Great movie. Three yeah. Kings. Good movie. Uh huh. Mm hmm. But like he sort of you know went uh, the independent way, and you seem to be like from getting to like from Puffy Chair. Yeah, was it, you did some acting, and then you did Cyrus, and there was mm -hmm. one. Was there one other movie? We it, did this movie Baghead after Puffy Chair, and then did Cyrus, and that was a big jump. That was like a seven million dollar movie at you know Searchlight, and then Jeff, who lives at home, was about that size. Um, I have to be careful when we put these movies into the world. Like this movie has Jason Segel and Ed Helms in it, and it looks like a comedy. And um, and I find the out fucking Puffy Chair is billed as a comedy on Netflix. Yeah, and so find that out with Cyrus that basically like people come into that, and when they see Jonah Hill on the poster and they hear comedy, they're expecting super bad. So I discovered that with Jeff who lives at home. Like, we need to treat this film like the art house movie that it is and let people know you're not going to get the hangover when you come into the theater. You're not going to get Sarah Marshall. You're going to get a dramatic comedy, which is kind of what we do. Right. So, so it's a, but that's like, a, uh, you know, that form is, is interesting because that's sort of like a, a 70s thing. That's what I love, man. I yeah, mean, but I don't know why they have it's so hard to sell that shit. I don't know why it's hard to sell it either, man. I got to be honest with you. I. It's what I love. It's what a lot of people I talk to love to see. But do you think, sadly, it's because that the idea of the Hollywood ending is really deeply ingrained more than we ever assumed? I don't think it's about the ending. I don't think it's. I think it's about the f about what people are going to the movie theater specifically for. Because what? my movies kill on DVD and TV. I mean, they just take off. Whether they'll pay the twelve to go into the theater for that experience, I think they just want something a little easier and to laugh their balls and off. And also, I think they want something that's worth twelve dollars. Unfortunately, it seems that movies are becoming just theme parks. Yeah, <laughs> that you know. And look, I got to be perfectly honest with you. It's it's more important to see Twenty One Jump Street in the movie theater than it is to see uh, Cyrus or Jeff in the movie theater versus DVD because my movies are on faces. Right, and they're also much more. They're much cheaper. They're personal, yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm not offended by someone who says I don't want to go to the movie theater and watch it. I want to watch it on DVD. I'm, I don't care as long as you come. But that being said, 
for my taste level any day of the week, I would just I would prefer the comedy that has a little something else in it, a little substance well, I, in it. I just think that a lot of times, uh, you know, like if I'm just going to go by my parents, yeah, that you know they, you know, would you like the movie? It's a downer. It's a little yeah. bit of a downer. That's yeah. it. There, there's your review. There it is. It was a yeah. downer. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I didn't enjoy it. You know, they. I think that people. Uh, there's a generation of people, and I think it might be deeper than we think, that want to go to ex- escape. Uh, 100%. And, and you're making movies that it's the it's almost the opposite of that. I'm going to tell you something right here. Is it a secret? Don't get freaked out. I won't. Something um, on fire? No. Jeff uh, Who Lives at Home is a little bit different. Uh-huh. Um, and it is not as much of a downer as the other films, which I'm curious to see how it will play out over the course of its life. And also, I think that you're, you, the way you choose talent, in, in, in talking about someone like Jason Segel or Ed Helms or, or even Jonah, that you know, if you've got a guy that knows how to be funny, uh, but is also a good actor, they're going to be darker and more serious oh, than anybody. Inherently. Yeah, yeah, because it's natural. Because whatever makes them naturally funny, if you can get that thing to come out, you're you know it's golden that's it for me i love mining these like incredibly talented comedians who have done a lot of improvisation for the comedy world and put them right into the dramatic format and say that same improv skill that you use to mine jokes we're going to go for a really dark golden emotional nuggets so you 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 do a lot of improv on the set every scene is improvised see see that's something that is inherently possible because of the technology 100 percent. we run like 20 minute takes sometimes why know? not we work from a traditional script there's a script there but they are improvising the lines and how that they're said so everything's just a little bit dynamic and surprising and different and then i am jay's on the camera and i'm in there with them and we're throwing out lines of dialogue at them at the same time while they're acting and they spit them right back out and you get this instinctual thing and the scenes come together right there in the moment so not only is it I think it gives it a spontaneity in that documentary feel. But for me, I call them soul points. Like it takes less soul points for me to make that kind of movie because I feel like a kid and I'm having fun. And it makes me feel like I can make movies for a long time if I make them this way while I'm having fun. Like it's, right. I was it, so psyched to hear that you're having fun on tour because I'm like, you're going to last out there if you're having fun. Well, I, I'm the same way in that I don't like to get, you know, uh, atrophied in an act. Like, my best moments are on stage, on stage are moments that I know will never happen again. And that, uh, that and I and I know that. Yeah. And, you know, certain ones of those I can, uh, you know, make note of and, and recapture or try to find the funny mm-hmm. back in them. But to me, if I depart from anything structured and, and then move through something organically right there in the moment i'm like that's it nothing beats that right but i should record it i'm a fucking retard i mean i you know yeah there's i can record everything yeah i don't well here's the great thing about movies and the way that we make movies is like all i have to do is get it once and then it's there forever for me but what do you do do you do you ever just dump the outtakes i mean they're really not even it's they're not even outtakes like they're just not they're not complete they're not done yeah so so the way you're shooting movies is is exciting because they're genuine moments that that aren't happening because you know an actor is so you know uh, in, has such a deep craft no that there's a repetition available and in fact we make them get off the script because I know they've prepared those lines in the mirror and they have something they want to do on set or they've and read it with an underlined exa- script exactly and then you take that away and then because everybody there knows that anything can happen at any time. They're on their toes. They're listening really well, so you get a different look from people. It's. Uh, I think a lot of it is felt more than you can actually like consciously see, but I, I think it's important. 
but it, what happens to concerns about because I mean in, in going back to Swacker and going back to this type of filmmaking that do you do you have any you know genuine respect for the idea of uh, mise-en-scene or, or or stage deck or, or you know composition of frames or are you like fuck that what's important is the organic nature of the interaction between people 90% of it is is about the interaction between people but I will say this what I love about documentary filmmaking is that the great moments that happen often happen with bad sound and bad light at a disadvantageous camera angle. Yeah. Because they don't know it's coming. Right. And everything in narrative film that's the big moment is perfectly poised with the right glint of light. And that means something to me. That means the world to me. So the I like to present things purposefully at disadvantageous angles and places that seem chaotic and make you feel like you're a fly on the wall. And if the situation is controlled i will actively put that disadvantage in it sometimes so that it gels with the rest of the film well there is uh like uh an emotional non-narrative menace is created yeah you got it i mean it's just look it's the same shit when you you fix up your hair in the mirror and yeah. then you're like this is too fixed up and then you mess it up before right. you leave you know that's what we're doing with our stuff we're getting it up on its feet okay Where's the chaos? Where, where's well, that fun? Where's by that? by denying the actors the the protection of lines, and by you know you know regenerating the moment and creating sort of like no do this now try that that you, you know they're off kilter one hundred percent, and you're just trusting that they're grounded enough as performers to not fuck it up. And most people love it, and some people hate it. But who hates it? You know, you just gotta talk to people ahead of time and tell them this is what it is. Who's been very nervous clearly. about it? Um, I mean, I don't think it's saying anything negative about somebody. No, you know, I honestly haven't had it, and I'm. This is really true. I haven't had a sit down with anyone who has said, "I love your movies." I've explained it to them. They said, "Oh, I don't want to do that." Yeah. Everybody I've sat with has gotten it. But like, for instance, I love Laura Laney to death. Yeah. I think she's incredible. I saw her do a Q and A once where she's talked so much about how script is God, and you have to find the meaning in the word, and the word is empirical truth, and you dig within it. And I was like. I don't know if we're going to be able to work together because <laughs> I'm looking for people to just fucking trash it. And right. And the, another thing, Jay and I can't direct anybody else's scripts. We have to write the scripts because we're brutal to the scripts. I mean, we just like tear them to pieces and improvise and throw them away. So, you know, I, I need people who are, don't have too much reverence for the word. Right. Right. Yeah. No Shakespeareans. Mm -mm. Yeah. <laughs> be interesting to get one though. Yeah. And shake them down. But uh, when you say you, you're festering with ideas now, like the 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 puffy chair, uh, you know, I got that. It's a you know kind of road self self revelation mm -hmm. movie. Um, but you, you know, Cyrus was kind of left field. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cyrus the the way that came out was like, you know, I'm I am fifty percent businessman and fifty percent creative person and i used to feel weird and guilty about that but i Why? totally embrace it now Why? because just like you know like you don't uh, want to be the ambitious guy how should the yeah is that is that weird does that make me less of an artist because i'm like thinking are you really thinking that in solitary mode or are you thinking like what are other people going to think about me it was all about what people will think about right me. i was comfortable with it in myself it's just like will they perceive me as less cool or less like a fully creative being when they know that like 
as I'm thinking about something creatively, I'm also simultaneously thinking about how cheaply can I make it? Which market is it going to? It's all one and the I same. Think, I think that those people, you know, obviously do better in the business and that if their work transcends their ambition, uh, you know, they, they get rewarded. But, you got to have 51% creativity. Well, yeah or, yeah. or just, you know, you got to generate you know, because there's something about um, ambitious people that is irritating to those of us who are insecure and panicky. Right. And are you insecure and panicky? Sure. Well, I don't, uh, you know, I've only begun to think about business because there was no business to be had. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's it's one thing, you know, all I do is be me. I mean, that's my business. But I mean, you you are doing, this garage is a startup and you have a brand. Well, now I know that. Well, that's the weird, yeah, well, that's the weird thing. It's still not a, uh, it's not a million dollar business. There's nothing really at risk here. Totally. But, but having, Earning your money for what you do, like there's, it's a different thing that than when someone says like, you know, here's a half million dollars. Uh, we just want you to hang out because we think we're going to make a show with you, or you know, there's a seed money. We can't guarantee, but you know, we don't want to lose you. There's something. It's like it feels gross. It's you know? very gross. And, uh, and unless you're doing something great with that money, right? But a lot of times in TV deals, it was like you know, then we're going to hook you up with this guy, and we're going to see if we can get this to go, and and then the whole thing gets away from you, and you made a little money, but you know, you just you know, you stash it, and you're like, I don't know when that's going to happen again yeah. but the interesting thing about i guess doing what you're doing what and certainly what i'm doing here is that i feel like i'm earning my money yeah 100 percent, and, and and that's different than yeah. working for somebody else and it's different with films because you're in relationship with a studio yeah and and you've got to do that dance but i'm just saying that blind ambition like a lot of people who are not that talented can definitely get by yeah with them if they're if they're focused enough and what? they and political enough and 100%. I find those people irritating. They are irritating. I find myself <laughs> irritating at times with my own ambition. But to me, you know, I can't I can't turn that button off in me. Well, why would like, you want to? I mean, the thing is you're generating it's not like someone's going to say, "God, that movie Cyrus was hacky." Yeah. But like I thought when I thought about Cyrus, I was like, "Okay, here we go. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a movie that has a poster and a trailer yeah. that Fox Searchlight feels comfortable that they can sell to the world." Yeah. I'm not going to try and make those weird. But they also put, they sold it as a comedy though. Totally, and I knew they were going to do that. Um, and I delivered them a love triangle concept, but I made them a very weird love triangle. And that's what I'm kind of trying to do to a certain extent. It's like make something in forms that are understandable, but once that form is set and they can make their trailer and their poster the way they want to, I want to get super weird inside of that form. But but how much of a fight was that? It's not a fight at all. Um, and the reason is because. These actors, and we're lucky enough because of the puffy chair and Baghead and Cyrus and Jeff, actors see this stuff and they know we're obsessed with performance and they know we're going to make them look good. So no, now, but I mean, but I struggle with the studio. That's, this is the currency because the actors want to work with me and Jay. They come and work for cheap. And, and the then, studio just says, well, that I guy's get, a gold mine. And then I go right. to the, or end of the studio and I say, they're working at one fiftieth of their quote, not for you. They're doing that for us. And so I'm delivering you this movie that would normally cost you $25 million for $5 million. So for that, I want to be able to do what I can do and know that even if the movie sucks, you're going to make your money back on DVD the first week it releases. Mm-hmm. So look at us as a lottery ticket. Maybe we blow up, maybe we don't, but you can't lose money on us. And that's how I th- we're developing tenure in this business now because our currency is that actors want to work for us. They'll do it for cheap, and the studios can't turn us down. It's like uh, the Woody Allen model. That's, it's basically like that, except for we don't have glasses. You don't have glasses, yeah. and and you're uh, you're going. You need to keep hitting 
good movies. Yeah, and you know, you're I, not at a point where it's like, yeah, he has a stinker. You know, he's making one movie a year. Yeah, I haven't made a huge financial success yet. None of my movies have lost money, but like, you know, they've only like Cyrus made a couple of million dollars by the end of the profit. You know, like I could use I could use a little like Juno or something. Although, well, but but what now? But how about offers where they're saying like uh, maybe we get some of that Duplass energy in here. <laughs> Well, have him have him do. Well, you know, you're making money on the league, right? Yeah, that's a good nut. But but in terms of movies, are you gonna you gonna sell yourself out to uh, you know to either write or direct? You know, outside of the work you do with your brother, or or for some other director, or the only thing that we sort of do to I would say you know make money, pay mortgage, and stuff like that is uh, we'll occasionally do novel adaptations or rewrite jobs or things like that. And you do you you're available yeah, for that? Yeah, I am. And honestly, that's really hard work to get. Um but it's the most coveted work. It pays really well and you get to know a studio by doing it and figure out do I want to work there later on. So they're saying, look, we got this script so and so wrote it. Here's this guy's attached to it, but we think it could it we needs think a little it needs, something. Uh, you know, some usually the, magic. We we need some of that Barton Fink feeling <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we get. Like we get, it's really funny, but it's not emotionally rooted. Can you guys make these characters look good? You right. Know? Or we get. You it's know, usually a character thing. It's, it's it's not like a joke. But you know, there's punch up guys. You're we not don't a punch. We're up not guy. a punch up guy. Like listen to this podcast, and you'll see. Like I'm yeah. not that funny. I'm about like getting the emotional stuff yeah, in yeah. there. You know. So um, they're saying this character lacks depth. Is there some? So what do you look for in something like that when you're writing your own thing? Mm-hmm. Like when you do something like uh, let's get away from the puffy chair, but Cyrus, because that was tricky. Um, in, in terms of you know keeping the relationship between the, the the mother and son just creepy enough, yeah, and not uh, beyond creepy. And I, I try to get it to eighty percent on the page. Once I get to eighty, I stop, and then I know I'm going to nuance the rest of it in the room because but, there's no way I can predict. No, but I mean, but you know, the triangle was set up is that you've got this you know inappropriate, bordering emotionally inappropriate relationship between a mother yeah. and her adult son, and then you have. Um, uh, John C. Riley, who's kind of like uh, you know a heartbroken doofus, who's mm-hmm. finally kind of you know fallen into something. Can we make a movie together called Heartbroken Doofus? Yeah, where you play the lead. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I available think for that. I would literally. I just want to get Jay. Yeah. And come over to your house at like six in the morning. Okay? okay. Yeah. We're just gonna walk out your front door. Yeah. And we're gonna walk around Highland Park. Talk. And we're going to talk to people and try and meet them. Yeah. And, and, and we're going to look for love and food. Okay. Maybe you need a new car and it's going to be called Heartbroken Doofus. Okay. It's a documentary. I, I would watch that movie Documentary? In a documentary? It's a, it's a, it's a Duplass It's project. a new form. Okay. We don't know what it is. Okay. Know? Yeah. Yeah. What's, whenever you got time. Let's just set it. I got, yeah. I got plenty. All right. Like we'll do it in a week. Perfect. All right. But, uh, but so then, but, but so the whole tension of it is, the the John C. Riley's characters, you know, sort of, you know, growing, you know, bewilderment, but uh, emotional commitment to the situation, mm-hmm. and then the competition between him and the kid. Yeah. When you were creating that, when you got it on paper, did you say, "All right, th- this is how the triangle works. This kid doesn't want to lose his mother to this guy because they're married, basically." Yeah, that's what you said. I try to go for the biggest basic form of conflict. In my opinion, that's the stuff that plays, and and and. It doesn't do you any justice to try and come up with original plot points. I know it sounds crazy, but I think you need to use standard Shakespearean classic plotting, you know, 
son cannot give up mom, new guy in picture, conflict arises. That's Greek. That's Greek shit, okay? Let's just go all the way back, you know? And then what you do is once you get inside of it, then you try and make it peculiar and interesting and specific inside of the form. But I think that the mold should be stock, basically. It should be just pat, stock, traditional storytelling. But what's interesting about that is then you can deconstruct it because the the amazing thing about the last shot of the puffy chair was that you know you did have you know, the the embrace was there but it was an embrace of sadness yeah that you know that it didn't end up together it wasn't a comedy of remarriage it was not you know it didn't start out uh, in 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 a place that that ended up like you know okay but they are together yeah. there's an understanding there yeah. so they end up together in this embrace but it's it's uh they're done yeah, that's a good that's a good assessment. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. The the script was completely different the way it was supposed to end. So well, how was it supposed to end? Um in in the script we envisioned that he would break up with her and he would finally get the courage to do it. And uh Katie in the moment in the in the I left a bunch of silence there. She just went ahead and grabbed it. And she said, you know, just how tragic would it, after the take she said how tragic is it that, you know, She's saying she wants to break up with him, but really what she's kind of saying there is hoping that he will say no. Um, but, but he didn't. But he didn't. Because that's what, you mean when she started that was crying. her last. That right. was her last test. She's been testing him the whole movie. Right. And she gave him the last one, you know? Right. And that's why you hire fucking smart actors who are also writers. Right. Because they give you gold, you know, in the moment. Well, do you like that kind of like, uh, like okay, let's like let's talk about the 70s movies. I mean, yeah, the, the kind of, yeah, existential endings of uh, you know five easy pieces. Or oh, that's the it, long man. goodbye or whatever. I mean, like Hal Ashby and Altman and what those guys were doing. You know, well, that, Altman certainly. I mean, it's like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah, and the, the layers of conversation I that mean, had an eternal effect on me. And while I don't, which one? Um, the the I would say the long goodbye was a really big. And that's the one that influence. took me a long time to to like. It, I don't know what it is about that. I think it was the fact that I was conscious early on that I was like, I'm in a detective movie, and this is the weirdest fucking detective movie I have ever so loose. seen. So loose. It's so loose. It's so about right. emotions. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And that, to, to a degree, when you see Jeff Who Lives at Home, you're going to see. Uh-huh. Jeff Who Lives at Home is a quest movie. Hands down. It's Lancelot. It's Sword in the Stone. Uh-huh. But it's a stoner looking for wood glue in the suburbs um, of America, uh-huh. and we just literally replace that with the form, and that that comes directly out of my understanding of movies like The Long Goodbye. You know, yeah, I, it took me like out of all the movies, like I'm a McCabe and Mrs. Miller freak, and that movie, you can't get that movie made today. I mean, it's incredible. Like, it's 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 I've watched it so many times. But here's the cool part about like this is not to again this is my business brain again, but like you can now make a movie because of these cameras that we have that looks so fucking good yeah. for under $200,000 with huge movie stars in them because they want to come play. Um, and as long as you don't have crazy, crazy set pieces, uh-huh. like you can deliver that movie and you can get creative satisfaction because you made it the way you want to make it. You can get financial satisfaction. You'll sell it big because you have movie stars in it. And we've never been able to do that before. So my version of like the early 70s renegade filmmaking is happening to a certain degree with movies like Cyrus and Jeff Who Lives at Home because I'm keeping my budgets, my budgets modest. But where it's really happening is in the micro-budget stuff that I'm making, which is like, I made this movie called Your Sister's Sister with my friend Lynn Shelton who made Hump Day. Mm-hmm. 
it was me and you know Emily Blunt and Rose DeWitt, and we made that movie really cheaply. And you know that's a movie where I was like. We had our cake and we ate it too. But is there any part of you that, like, if you look at, at McCabe and Mrs. Miller, yeah. all right, and you look at, you know, the construction and the cinematography, is that, you know, there there is a looseness to, to Altman's movies, but there's a layered genius to, you know, to all of it, that he's fucking with, uh, you know, the birth of the, uh, uh, of, of industry, the end of the Wild West. You're dealing with uh, the, the relationship between religion, corporations, and mythology. You're dealing with, you know, why was, uh, why was Warren Beatty wearing a fucking derby? I mean, yeah. what is the only point of reference for a derby in the history of film? Charlie Chaplin, was he a fucking buffoon? You know, there's that scene where he's there's sitting there. There's a bigness there. to all that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but there's a, a layer of in- intellect that, that either, I, you, you never know what that shit you know we does does are we reading it into right it? Yeah. right does altman answer those questions i mean you know when you when uh when somebody was talking about but but what it is it's an organic relationship between a director a cinematographer and a set designer yeah and and that if you're all operating at an elevated point like you know someone pointed out to me uh i don't remember who it was it might have been a semiotics professor at some point in college that the scene in uh, the godfather where the meeting with Salazzo, mm-hmm. where you know Sonny, you know speaks out of turn, yep. and Salazzo is wearing that suit, and it's all cut and dapper, and he's slick, and the Godfather, his collar's loose, and he's wearing a brown suit that, and you know, and behind Salazzo, there's a plant, a green plant, and behind you know uh, uh, Brando is like old fucked up pictures, like it's. Is that something that somebody read into it, or is that some yeah. fucking genius? Do you have any of those answers? Does any of that stuff interest you as a I filmmaker? I don't have those answers. I, I, at this point in my career, am all about chaos and, and stopping my brain and going with my gut instincts. So I don't think I will ever walk into a scene and say, I need to make sure that the American flag, but a tattered American flag, is is tucked into the corner so I can see Why, that. Do you feel that that's pretentious or just not within your creativity? It's not within my interest level at this point. Right. I, th- I might grow to it. And I, I kind of feel like Jay and I have a microcosmic approach to filmmaking. Our first success was because we got our story right and our performance right. Our movie looked like shit. It sounded like shit. We didn't care. We just wanted to get those two things right. And now with Cyrus, I was like, oh, okay. I'll do story performance and a little better camera. And then with Jeff, who lives at home, was like, I'll do those three things, and I'm going to add a car chase and a couple of big set pieces. So I'm kind of like slowly adding layers onto the cheeseburger of my success level. Maybe I'll be able to- And your creativity, though. Yeah, and maybe I'll be able to control all that stuff. I can't do that right now. But are you you afraid of it in any way? I mean, what was it like to direct uh, I mean, a car chase. Were you like, fuck, we've never done a car chase. (laughs) Yeah, I was scared going into it. Um, And who walks you through that? Your cinematographer? Did you have a guy that did car chases? We did have a guy that did car chases. (laughs) And we have to sit down with him and say, we're not going to be doing it your way. We're going to have to do this our way, you know? Like, how how can we use your tools to to honor our vision? To facilitate what we're doing, which is like, you know, I want this thing to look and feel like... Um, what's uh, you know, Popeye Doyle? Uh, yeah, yeah, Gene Hackman under yeah, the uh, under yeah. the under the subway. Bridge. We got to look like we caught this on a DV camera. Yeah, you know, With that's, him looking up. That's what this yeah. is about. Yeah, so, yeah. So, in many ways, it was just as much about retraining the stunt guys to come to our level as it was learning from them. Uh-huh. Um, so that's all part of the education. It's all part of the education, and it was really fun, and and we got it right, and it feels shaggy and loose, and it feels like a part of our movie, you know. Um. But to your other question, I am a little bit scared of introducing like um, things like overly production designed aesthetics and intellectual concepts into the film because I'm constantly afraid of losing sight of the most important thing on set. And that's probably because 
I've made some bad movies in the past that really hurt my feelings, you know. And like and, what? No, are they? Did we see them? No, I buried them all, you know. But those were movies where I was not focused on the important. Well, how did they things. get away from you? What What were you looking at? What the important things being? Uh, honest, immediate, emotional uh, tension. Yeah, and 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 performance and the core of the story and interpersonal relations and all that stuff and and. I got too obsessed with like moving the plant over in the right place and yeah. making sure the lighting was good. And and so what I did was I would shoot one side of the scene. It looked beautiful. The acting was pretty good. Broke for 45 minutes. Yeah. Iced all the actors. Yeah. Lit the other side beautifully, brought them back and got a piece of shit performance because everybody was out of the moment. So you have a incredibly well-polished turd. Yeah, but I mean, but on some level, is that not uh, on the actor? It is a little bit, but not for the stuff that I'm looking for. All right. I want more than that, you know. Now, what uh, what do you got in the can? Um, I got this movie, Safety Not Guaranteed, which was at Sundance this year. It's me and Jake Johnson and Aubrey that's Plaza. What, that's what you were there when I saw you? Yeah. Um, that's coming out. That's in, you and your brother? No, that's just something that I uh, produced and acted in. Well, let's talk about this acting thing. Yeah. I uh, mean- Wait, what's what's more important? You just see it as you know, just what you're doing. I mean, you just uh, do you enjoy that or do you want to do it? I intensely enjoy it. Um, it is total creative freedom, no responsibility, basically. Just listen to the guy. Oh, I'll try that. Show up, do some stuff. Yeah. Let let everybody else curate it when you're gone. You know, you don't um, argue with directors. It's basically like being a a studio guitar player in a jazz session where you right. just like sit in. You're like, we're in the key of A. Great. Let's yeah, do this. Yeah. Riff a bunch of shit. Riff yeah. a bunch of shit. Okay, you're gonna you probably piece that together. All right, I'm out of here. Uh-huh. Incredible. You know, and then where'd I, you get your chops? Just you just uh you just from did, doing your own movies? They developed organically, yeah. Me and Jay. Like Jay's four years older, so he knew how to work the camera when we were nine mm-hmm. and I was five, and then he put me in front of the camera and I've never he, seen him. That was it. He's got a beard, he looks a little bit like you. Okay. And you guys always got along? Yeah, we did. I mean I I put most of that on Jay just because it's easier for the younger brother to want to hang out with the older brother but not as easy you know, right. the other way around and like I, rem- I remember going into his room when I was like eight and listening to the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and being like no one my age is getting this no like, yeah the older I, brother thing music wise that's the best oh it was huge and, and four years just enough and everything you know yeah. I learned how to play drums at nine and yeah then he taught, you know was so, he uh, in a band um, he, he and I played in bands together and then I got more serious as a musician and he didn't do as much touring with me cause he was running our editing business. Do you miss time. music? You know what I miss? I miss like, and I'm, I guess it's a, you know, you could relate it to stand up. I miss that those two or three minutes on every show you do that like feel like a high when everything's working yeah, yeah, and yeah. gelling, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. But that's the only two to three minutes I miss out of playing music, out of the whole 24 hours of a touring day. You don't miss just banging around on an instrument by yourself? Do you still do I that? I still do that. And like my daughter and I fart around together, which yeah. is really fun. Uh-huh. Um, but, but you know, the 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 touring life, it, it just wore me down. It was too hard. Yeah. And with, the, with your brother, I mean, how much fight is there in the generation of these scripts? There is zero fight. It's crazy. We are so careful and respectful of the relationship, almost scared to do anything that would damage it because it seems so special. Um, and we're as creatively aligned as we are. We're extremely different people. Like I'm the bull and Jay's the brakes. Right. He, if it were up to me, I would make eight kind of bad movies a year and Jay would make like 
one masterpiece over the course of 80 years. Mm -hmm. And together, somehow, we can like combine those two energies and make it work. And so I don't know how to explain it. It's just like if there's a problem that comes up, there's an immediate awareness of like we have a lifetime of making great movies together. Even if you're getting hot-headed, don't say anything stupid here. And and uh, I don't have that perspective in other relationships. Well, like, but it's also your brother. I mean, it's going to take a lot to fuck that up. Yeah, it is. You know, but I'm more re- – like, even Katie, my wife and I are more reckless with each other than Jay and I are. Well, you we're, can we're, fuck we're, that up. You can fuck that up. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I just, they'll only take so much, those girls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah we're just really really respectful and and careful and usually if there's ever a conflict we just within five minutes one of us figures out who the more passionate one is uh-huh. and we just let the passionate one win huh. now what about this producing thing what does that mean like when you produce a movie like so, you're producing a movie so and you're in the movie. when i produced safety not guaranteed it was like i helped them get the money because i was in the movie and they knew that jay and i consulting on the movie it would have a better chance of Okay. Get, getting into Sundance and doing well. So it's a credit. Yeah. And um, and it's a way for me to curate a cool movie for me to be in, honestly, mm-hmm. which I like doing. Um, and and then the other producing things. So you use your cachet to, you want me in the movie? And I think I can help you, you know, get the support for this if I'm in the movie. That's, the financial a, that's a big part of it, honestly. Right, yeah. right. And then another part of it is like where we just fund the whole project out of money that we either make directing or writing movies for younger filmmakers that we love and, and want to support mm-hmm. you know, the equivalent of you taking somebody on the road with you. Cause you just believe in them. Yeah. Why? Well, or I like to hang out with them more. Or you want to hang out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, not so much about like, you're going to be it kid. It's more like I can tolerate you and we can yeah. eat together. And at, at two in the morning, <laughs> exactly. when I call you, you will pick yeah, up yeah. and I'm listen not, to me. I'm weep. not, I'm not that needy. Yeah. No, I, I don't make those calls. I sweep very well for some reason. I don't me know too. Why. I don't know when that happened. And I'm I I have I've had like anxiety issues and real depression issues and did all kinds of shit. Yeah, oh yeah. But but what do you do? I mean, what what kind of depression? What did you find that it was chemically based or was it, you know, yeah, you're just you a a a a side effect of your ambition? I think um I think that those two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, on, right. although I'm not sure. Yeah, no I think one I was is. able no to I think I was able to manage it for a while and then I think there are moments in my life where it has flipped into the chemical zone where I was like, Oh, I need help now. You know, really? I need yeah. And 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 but mostly I can manage it if I'm like exercising, eating okay, getting my eight hours of sleep. But to the point of what you're talking about, even in my most anxiety ridden and depressive states, I can always sleep eight hours. Yeah. It must be a constitution or a DNA thing. Well, if you don't have panic mixed in there. If anxiety and panic aren't your issue. Yeah, you I've had dep- anxiety and panic mixed But depression, in there. like sometimes it'll enable you to sleep you know, more than that. Even more than that, yeah. Those come together for me. I, I've, I've, you always hear people say that anxiety is just depression in a type A person, like is, is a, one of those theories. Well, yeah. you know? That must be the pharmaceutical company. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you can treat it with both. Yeah, yeah, it's no, perfect. It's a great drug. Yeah, but wait, what, what periods are these depression periods? How long I had a like? real hard one after the puffy chair. Why? It was my first hey, wait, big one. All right, so you had a depression after your first major success. Yeah, because I climbed the mountain, the yeah. mountain I've been always looking up, and I got to the top. Right, and I wasn't happy, and it just fucking freaked me. I didn't know this was happening at the time. I didn't have that consciousness, but uh-huh. I can see it now. Uh-huh. I've been trudging up that hill my whole life. I'm going to get a movie and a Sundance is going to sell, yeah. and then and then I'm going to be happy. And you then thought got, you were going to be happy. Subconsciously, uh-huh. you know? And then I got to the top and I was like, uh-oh. What, like the day after Sundance? What the fuck do I do? No, it was about like six to eight months after, and I was in Hollywood and taking all the meetings and doing the whole thing, and 
And I was like, this is what I've been dreaming of, and it hasn't changed anything. Well, it's because you didn't realize that it was just a means to an end, but you seem to intellectually realize that. And yeah, but you, as you well know, intellectually realizing something and it has no reconciling bearing. that with your spirit is a whole other issue. You right. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so... So you're taking all these meetings, and you're like, you know, this is going to be great, kid. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is just the beginning. Everything's going to be incredible. It's and then be you realize, amazing. like, you know, you're on the top of your mountain, and... Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, this, six months later, I'm having a panic attack and I'm on the floor and I'm just like, what, right. what, what's going on here? But none of that was realizing that, uh, you know, you just, because of the clouds can see the higher mountains. Yeah, exactly. You're and like, then, oh, I've got to climb that too. <laughs> <laughs> I just got here. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So there was a little bit of that. And I then, think that's normal. That's sort of like, it's like, uh, what do they call that in theater? You know, after... After you shoot, after you do a play, that kind of like that yeah, time yeah. when it's over. That like, postpartum depression yeah, thing or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. That was part of it. And and then, you know, I mean, look, I was 27 too. I was just like not that emotionally aware of what was going on in my life. And, and I think I've always been as a, a, just kind of, as you said, you sense the darkness in me. There's like, there's like just been this driven, dark persona in me for whatever reason. So I think that was brewing But that's there. better now. It's better now. Because you're fucking compulsively working. You've got a family. I'm basically feeding the beast is what and, I'm doing right, now. But yeah, but I'm not also, going to therapy and trying to fix my nature. I am giving into my nature and trying to be somewhat responsible with it. Right. Well, there's that fine line too, not unlike ambition, you know, uh, self-pity yeah. in, a success, <laughs> in a successful person is, yes. not, is not attractive at all. Not at all. Yeah. Don't feel sorry for me. Yeah. <laughs> My life is fucking awesome. I'm just kind of a dark person and it's always going to be there and there's nothing I can do about it. And that, that. and that comes out in the in the movies. Yeah. I mean, my sense of humor, I guess, is a little bit there. And, and I guess that's the way, the way I experience the world is what I'm trying to put in my movies, which is like, Jay and I will have this, you know, whether it's a fight or Katie and I will have a fight and it seems like the world is over and it's so dark and so sad and the next morning I wake up and I'm just laughing my ass off at myself and I don't know why that is or why I have that perspective do you cry too yeah I cry a lot so like you know oh yeah you know uh, I don't cry as much uh, because I'm not arguing as much with uh, with the woman I'm with this is a good this is a good sign by the way well I think that like I, I recently was working on this bit that you know when you have these weird territorial arguments with, mm -hmm. with with a woman in our case and you know you make this fucking point that's fueled by you know pride and a certain amount of rage yeah and then you know when it's played out and you sit there and you're just brooding that you, i uh, you should be crying you yeah. should just be crying and saying like oh, seven <laughs> <laughs> that's so great you, you know that there's that humility of of there's nothing better. Pride is such a, a an ass kicking disaster. Oh my God, nothing good. It, but it's so weird that you know, as somebody, I don't know how much Catholicism you grew up with. Tons. Well, you know, the seven deadly sins is a pretty good list. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty fucking brilliant list that you know you never you know all these things are sort of like the 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 root of all of them. Yeah, are are healthy human endeavors. Absolutely, but That's to manage right, yeah. but to manage them, you know, the idea of sin. As, as not being, you know, the, you can't correct sin, but, you know, sin was really designed uh, as, as a sort of a, a context to judge your behavior sure. against. To me, that, that's sort of genius. But, you know, you don't really understand pride until you fucking, your ass has been handed to you somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and pride is that one that it's always going to come up. And like, and I imagine it has to be one of the things you fight with that. You know, I'm sure that when you got to the top of the mountain, you enjoyed 
being on top of the mountain for at least a few months. Oh, definitely. I had it was it was more like weeks. Honestly, it wasn't. I don't have the constitution to go months because I was constant. I was looking for the next mountain, you know? Because I think a lot of your movies speak to that in, in that you know, the, this must be percolating inside. Whatever ambitious or, or, or workaholic, uh, your creativity seems to be kind of driven towards the natural uh, humiliation of life. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's how I experience it. I'm constantly doing buffoonish things like and making, what and making mistakes and really i mean have you made uh, any mistakes that you know really put your life in uh, that really was like how like you, not life mistakes that humiliated in, yourself or that you had to grovel for um not life mistakes that would result in like you know divorce or or losing a good relationship with my brother you know but i move very very quickly and on instinct you know um and that gets me in trouble sometimes because you're selfish uh, I'm. I don't know that I'm selfish. Or you're not. You're yourself involved to the point where you don't take other people's feelings with, into with consideration. My, with my creativity, right. I, I become blinded and self-oriented at times, and I'm just like, you know, I'm gonna set. Uh, let's set up this movie and let's go here and let's do yeah, this yeah. and this. And then right. a couple of people around me are like, um, yeah. dude, yeah. Uh, I thought you were gonna yeah. like be working on my yeah, movie yeah, at this time, yeah. and yeah. you know things yeah. like that. You know, I can get well, do you, do you buffoonish. En- well, do you enjoy? Um, I mean, is there some party that creates these characters? Because you don't, you know, I mean, you may, I mean, you don't seem, you know, paralyzingly dark, Mm-mm. but so do you create these characters to kind of, you know, play out those feelings as, are you entertained by the 100% <laughs> I love by how far you can push a character? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they are, they're all extensions of me and Jay to a certain degree. I mean, the, the reductive word would be the calling them lovable losers to a certain extent, you know? Right. Um, but for for us, that I'm not interested, at least at this point in my career, creating a hero protagonist who is perfect and watching them overcome external obstacles. I love the internal obstacles because it's what I face. I have zero problems. I have an awesome house, great wife, beautiful kid, Good working relationship with my brother, great career. Yeah. I got my health, all mm-hmm. this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yet somehow I can s- fill my day with worry and stress and concerns over things. How the hell, how the hell do I do that? And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm constantly amazed by that. Like what? Um, like, like, am I going to die? No, like, uh, I'll have like, you know, 12 great projects going on but the 13th one might be losing its money and all I can do is worry about that one so you fester on the negative shit. yeah sometimes I do you know and and but that's just to talk about my the characters in my movies which is like I never thought that these white middle classy kind of problems would be film worthy right you know and then one day Jay and I went on our instinct and we he was like depressed because our movies were shitty and i was like we're making a movie today this was like 2002 yeah and um and i was like what's something interesting that happened to you you know and i was like like the real conversations that we have and he's like a week ago i almost had an emotional breakdown trying to record the outgoing greeting of my answering machine because i could not get it right and i was like okay something went off in my head with that i was like okay that's a stupid little problem, yeah. but it also has an existential quality to it, and it's a real problem for someone who is not facing famine or cancer, you know? Right. So I was like, okay, I'm going out the door, you get the camera, I'm going to come in and try to recreate that. And we shot one, like, 20-minute improvised take of that, and 
it's the worst looking and sounding film in history. We shot it on like our parents' DV camera. Right. And that was our first movie that got into Sundance. And and I have stayed true to that ethic to this day, which is basically those things that I never thought would be film worthy, but that are personal to me and that feel interesting and funny and dark. I just trust those things. Well, I think that like in, in, in my understanding of something like that, you're dealing with somebody like what that reveals about a person is is an obsessive nature, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lack of self acceptance, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, probably a self loathing that that escalates. Mm-hmm. And, and you can extrapolate all those things from the tiniest things. Well, that and I think that's true. I think that's the poetry of day to day life. That yeah. if you can you know focus in on those moments and those behaviors, like it, because I don't like that. I, I guess you're using the word reductive. That you know what problems could you have? You know, uh, you know, I lost my arm. Yeah, and I'm like, well, I don't have that one, but I'm pretty fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. How is this a competition? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the best you can do is like find empathy and say like, well, I'm really. Yeah, you know, it's horrible that you lost your arm, and I definitely feel bad for you. But I'm trying to record this message, so <laughs> <laughs> and it's also hard for me, man. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. this is hard. I mean, maybe if I lost my arm, I'd have something real to focus yeah. on. Although I will say this: that that really tough bout of depression I had after the puffy chair, mm. I did have a great couple of years, and every now and then I can remember it where. Where I was like, you can't touch me now. Like, get me a broken leg, whatever. Like, I thought I was never going to get off the floor. Sure. And and I do still retain a little bit of that perspective every now and then. Like, I, you know, when I get the flu, yeah, it's not quite as bad because I'm like, I I I thought for a second there I was never going to be normal again. You right. Know? Yeah. But also, like, you know, the sometimes with with uh, like for me, what I. Because the one thing that I know and that you seem to have been for years now is that like I'm fucking busy. Yeah. And you know, every once in a while I have a moment where I'm like, when does this shit stop? I'm in it right now. And 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 it's like you don't know if you can continue doing it because it's like I'm there's some part of me that's exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm not physically exhausted, but you know, I got Mark Duplass coming over here and I gotta fucking talk to him for an hour. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm fucking exhausted and I know he's gonna talk about himself. <laughs> No, no, but I mean, like, I mean, my my jobs are not as big, but you know, I can only do what I can do, yeah. And I and I never know when to stop working, and I never know, you know, when to to slow down. I don't know how to take a break. But I think that what you're talking about is that, you know, I mean, when you got kids and stuff, and we we started with this, that they they humble they humble you, and you you know the if you kick into that what you're supposed to be, which is you know selfless and in service of of that that child's uh, welfare and 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 being and able to you know express love and and take care of that that you know something inside you has to relax it, there's a bit of i mean like today uh, there was a bunch of stuff i could be doing i was like no i'm going to see Marin. i'm going to do this other thing and i'm going to pick my daughter up at five o'clock like that's what i have to do where is she um Close? she's at school and uh you know in los Feliz. So. okay you got time so super easy you know so the league let's do that like league. Uh, you're, you're having a good time i love the league and and it's look there's zero emotional content on the league they're yeah, but yeah, I, I, you know, I honestly have not. Uh, I think I watched the first episode, but I love those guys. I you love. Know, I, the guys. I know Ren is easy. Well, mm-hmm. uh, we work together at the comedy store. Nick Kroll, I love, and I, there's a couple other people on there that I, you know, that Paul I know. Shear. I think. Oh, you he's great. Know. Yeah, he, yeah. I, he was in here, and then my wife's on the show with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's doing well, right? And it does really, really well. We're in this really cool spot where we're kind of uncancelable. Like we, we get like uh, you know a few million viewers a week. We got great sponsors. We're kind of cheap to make, you know. So mm-hmm. I think we're gonna, you know, we, we're going into season four now, and and it's it's the best 
TV job in history. We shoot three months out of the year. It's all improvised. So we just show up and uh-huh. get the outline and, okay, here we go. And everybody's nice. What's your uh, What's your favorite documentary? American Movie. Oh, yeah, okay. I mean, Mark Borchardt yeah. is the definition of the American hero for me. And that's... What's he up to? Everything I'm doing is a pale comparison to him. What is, but what's he done? I don't know what he's doing. You know, he rode that movie for a little bit and got some appearances and made some money and sold some of his movies off of it, which was great. Do you know him? Uh, I met him on the tour, the the doc tour when the movie came out, but I don't know him personally. Why wouldn't you reach out to him and maybe produce something for him? Uh, I don't think Mark's a good filmmaker. You know, I think Mark is a beautiful character and his dream of trying to make that movie without the skills uh, and what he had is, is like it's the most beautiful thing in the world to me and uh-huh. funny as shit and you know amazing so heartbreaking heartbreaking man but funny i mean it's all rolled up into one it, but it's, there's them. such a fucking fine line between like you know sort of like and i think you understand it is that you know you, creating characters that are or, or being a character that you know it just tries and tries but it's just not going to get there yep it, that's a real person, and and there's more of them than there are um, uh, people who do get it. I agree, and I'm and I also just happen to be in love with those people. Right, well, right, but you know, there's such a fine line in capturing those people and not making fun of them. Yeah, like you know, I have no tolerance for people that generate losers to 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 spit know. at them. Yeah, yeah, do I you, I am so with you on that, and I try to explain that over and over again to people. Is like, you know, you'll see it with Jason Siegel uh, as Jeff who lives at home. You know, he looks like a stoner living in his mom's basement. But like that guy's my hero, that character and the way he lives. And and I think that it is a fine line and I, but I don't want to oversimplify it. But honestly, like if you as a filmmaker are in love with those people and you just infuse everything you do with that love. You can throw all kinds of shit at them. You can, right. You can make fun of them all you want. As long as you love them, it's going to come through. And as long as everybody's you know, understands that. Yeah. You know, because I, I'm not even sure what I'm what judging it on, but there there is a sensibility, you know, of like, you know, sometimes in docs, you're not sure, mm-hmm. you know, whether the, the subject, you know, understands that he's a comedic. 100%. Antihero. Yep. And, and, and but I think that it, it speaks more to the, the fact that, you know, there's that whole idea that it's not... Yeah, it's it's the process. Yeah, that any th- process that anyone's in creatively, you know, that's it. Life is not that long, yeah. and we're all judging ourselves against you know tremendous success. But but at some point there there is a, a brutal acceptance of one's limitations. Yeah, and and one's uh, you know journey. But but I just have such a hard time with with uh, there's almost a, like a a condescending ironic bullying of of the underdogs of the world 100 I, I mean i i actually i like christopher guest movies but i think they border on that right sometimes for me you know i think that's true um and so like i want to i i always want to be on the other side of that yeah it's weird it's almost an intellectual bullying there's a there's this the the whole irony movement which mm-hmm. i think that you are reacting against and i think that you know the sort of paradigm shift you're talking about is hopefully in that direction to where someone's you know, creativity or someone's presence is ironic in 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 relation to to reality yeah. or the work they're doing. Like their ironic disposition is like, you know, I'm here, but my presence here is ironic because these people are fucking losers. Yeah. But they're they're cool because a bunch of me and my ironically detached friends, you know, are here or observing. Right, yeah. right. 
It's really, I mean, it's weird. I'm you know glad what I'm you said about? that because I really can't wait for you to see Jeff now. Because when we set out to make Jeff, I said, I want to make a character who has not an ounce of cynicism in his body. And and we're like, how are we Pick going the right to, guy? How are we going to define this? Well, yeah, we picked Siegel, which was helpful. <laughs> yeah. And then and the way we decided to set him up was basically like, he is obsessed with the movie Signs. He thinks it's incredible and and all, and that the universe is speaking to him and giving him, you know. And and to me, I was just like, I love that guy. Yeah. How easy is it to make fun of Signs? This guy, he fucking loves it. He yeah. just thinks it's like rip-roaring, fist-pumping, beautiful, you know, and he thinks his destiny is out there for him. And that's such an amazing thing because that is what, you know, postmodern ironic culture killed is the ability to have feelings about things that the herd... Absolutely. You know, the, the herd of hipsters has has diminished. Yeah. I want to, I like, I want... With Jeff and and with the stuff I'm making now, I want to raise fists in air and pump, and look like somebody at 1980s Neil Diamond concert. Like that. That's what we need right now. We I, need. Yeah, yeah. The humility of of liking something that other people have deemed uncool. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry I didn't see it, and I will see it. Yes, you will. Are you mad at me? No, not at all. Good talking to you. Oh, that was the lovely uh, Mark Duplass. What a mensch. Nice guy. Talented guy. Happy for him. Did you hear that? That's right. The new Mark. Because I'm on the beach thinking about things. That's my speculation. I'm going to come back a new man. Peace. A lot of peace inside. Oh, fuck. That's ridiculous. Hey, look. Go to WTFPod.com for all the WTFPod things. Get the app. Get the Mark and Tom show, me and Sharpling. Uh, get on uh, the mailing list. I'll mail you some shit, get some merch, kick in a few shekels, check my schedule, see who's been on the show, get a little just... Pow! Look out! I just shipped my pants coffee, just coffee.coop. Also, I want to tell you about this because I fucked up. If you're still listening, I fucked up. I did. I fucked up a little bit. I was supposed to be on this show and now I'm not on this show. But I want to plug this show because I want to help my buddy out, all right? My buddy, and your buddy as well, Eddie Pepitone, uh, is doing a Bitter Buddha fundraiser. There is a documentary uh, about Eddie called The Bitter Buddha, and uh, it's going to be a ju- Just for Laughs uh, up in uh, up in uh, Montreal. A lot of things are going on, but they need some funding to, uh, to, to, to push it out there into the world. So he's having an evening with The Bitter Buddha, a night of live comedy to celebrate uh, the upcoming documentary, uh, The Bitter Buddha. That's Tuesday, June 26th at 8 p.m. at the Echoplex in Los Angeles. And it's featuring some fucking hilarious people. Maria Bamford, Nick Kroll, Paul Shear, Rob Delaney, Jen Kirkman, Ron Lynch, Andy Kindler, Sean Conroy, Greg Fitzsimmons, and the pep. Mr. Pepitone himself will be there, of course. A surprise guest. There's live music and food trucks and everything else. Uh, it's, a, it's an event to raise funds for The Bitter Buddha, which will be hitting theaters and video on demand later this year. So do that for Eddie, and I'm sorry I couldn't be there. All right? That's that. Now I'm going to get back to relaxing, because that's what I'm doing. It's a speculation, because while you're listening to this, I'm not here, but I'm never here. It's not live, but now I'm not even doing what I'm actually talking about. Do, doing? Is it? Oh, my God. All right.